Well, good morning. I got to tell you, the Lord could not have ordered up a better choir number regarding what we're going to talk about this morning. And let me also say that every opportunity I get up here to present God's word to you, I do count it a privilege. So thank you for that. Um, before we get started, a quick shout out to my two daughters here. Lindsay is visiting all the way from Memphis, Tennessee for Thanksgiving. <clears throat> And my other daughter, Abby, she made the trip in all the way from Aetna. <laughs> As she does every week. She usually sits in a balcony, I said. I said, if you want to shout out, you've got to sit in the front row. So she did. <laughs> Let me begin by asking you a question. Do you ever think much about the fact that we are living in the last days? After all, Jesus emphasized that very truth, and when he did, he attached to it a great sense of urgency. And the reality is that Jesus could return at any moment for his church, in the blink of an eye, as the scriptures say. And when he does, he's going to usher in the next life, the one that we should not only be anticipating, but also actively preparing for. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And since Jesus warned us that the time is near and to be ready, shouldn't that dominate our thoughts and influence our lives on a daily basis? Such as how we establish and maintain our priorities or how we shape our goals and our agendas? And shouldn't it motivate us to pursue holiness and intimacy with him and to love others and live at peace with one another, especially members of the body and of our own household? In his recent book, Letters to the Church, Francis Chan wrote, Jesus is coming, but I meet very few people in America who live as if they actually believe this. What do you think? Are you living today like he could return tomorrow? And if he did return tomorrow, would you be ready? I mean, these are important questions to ask ourselves and honestly consider. Because someday soon, we're going to all stand before him and give a personal account of what we did with what he gave us. And Paul put it this way when he wrote, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So we want to remain sober and alert, but also do whatever is needed to thoroughly prepare for that day. So in order to help us do that, turn with me if you will, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. And I'll be reading our text today from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And while you're turning there, I'll set the scene. So Jesus is in the process of wrapping up one of his longest recorded teaching sessions, most commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And during his discourse, he unveiled some rather peculiar and unconventional commands. Commands that revealed what life would be like for anyone that tried to enter his kingdom and follow him. Things like turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, 
and forgiving those who hurt us and making the pursuit of him and his kingdom the number one priority in your life. And Jesus also cautioned that following him would be like walking a very narrow road hemmed in on both sides with difficulty and persecution. And so as he approaches the end of his sermon, he caps it off with this parable, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, unlike other parables, this one's not very complex or difficult to decipher. In fact, it's a fairly simple illustration that teaches an important lesson, how to stand firm at the judgment. And Jesus said the way to construct a house that will stand firm in the end is by doing his will. And that's because obedience to God's word validates genuine faith. Obedience by itself doesn't save us, but obedience is the fruit of a repentant heart that proves or demonstrates saving faith. In other words, hearing God's word should result in doing God's word. And if it doesn't, you may be building your house upon the sand. So today I'm going to share with you why obedience is important to God and to us. And then we'll finish with some practical principles on how to establish and cultivate an obedient heart. And so as we walk through this brief study together, let's do so in a spirit of self-examination, making an honest assessment of our foundation. I've entitled today's message, The Rock of Obedience. Let's pray. Father, I stand before you a man of flesh and bone, and apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, these people didn't come here to hear from me. They come here to hear from you each week. And so, Father, I need a fresh anointing. I need a fresh empowering of your spirit so the words that I speak will be empowered supernaturally and they will fall on listening ears and obedient hearts. And it's with great expectation that I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. amen. And as we look together in God's word today, may the Lord be with you. I don't know about you, but I'm a pushover for a good home renovation show. I love watching how the renovators take something that's uninhabitable and then transform it into something exceptional. And I'm personally captivated by the construction and building portions of these shows, not so much the decorating and the furnishing. And I've watched enough of these things to know that every project begins with an assessment of the structural integrity of that home. 
Because you can't install that high-end kitchen or add on that third bedroom until you're certain the foundation will support everything that will rest upon it, including the people over the long term. Everything depends on a solid foundation. And you know, the same is true for you and me as followers of Jesus. Because according to him, we're all building houses, whether we realize it or not. And he informs us that there are two kinds of builders, the wise and the foolish. Now, oddly enough, both have much in common because both builders listen to God's word. Both hear it and consider it and probably even affirm its source and its overall importance. And furthermore, both houses look identical from the ground up. However, there's one fundamental difference that separates the wise from the foolish builder. And that is the wise builder actually obeys what he hears while the foolish builder does not. In other words, obedience to Jesus is the key to building your house upon the rock. Those who choose to obey his words are wise, and they will stand firm, while those who choose not to obey are foolish and will not. And James stressed this very thing later on when he said, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're what? You're only fooling yourselves. I had a grade school teacher that always told us that if we cheated or didn't pay attention or didn't do our assignments, we may get away with it for now, but we're only fooling ourselves in the long run. Now, I didn't understand that principle at the time, but I eventually discovered that she was right. Because when I tried to enroll in college many years later, I was so woefully behind in math that I had to pay for and pass two remedial math courses for no credit in order just to qualify to take a college-level math course. I discovered that it's better to be faithful and obedient now than to live with regrets later. The point is this. The house-building decisions you make today will greatly affect your tomorrow. Now, before I go any further, it's important to establish a proper motive for obedience. Yes, standing firm at the judgment is good motive. We all want to do that. But it's much more than that. Because building our house upon the rock of obedience is much more than performing for God, much more than behavior modification or legalism or keeping rules or earning our way into the kingdom. Because all of those things are false and nothing more than dead ends. Nor is our motive to try to persuade God to love us more, because the truth is he can't love us more than he already does. Instead, our obedience is a loving response to an incredibly gracious God. You see, obedience to Jesus is about loving him so much and appreciating what he did for you so much that you'll strive to do whatever he wants just to please him. In other words, love for Jesus is the proper motive that inspires obedience. 
The experts say there are five designated love languages, and everybody falls into one of those five categories. Now, if you don't know, love languages are how we're wired to best receive and respond to love from others. For me, it's words of affirmation. When my wife Mary or my kids respond to me with affirming words, that triggers something within me that makes me feel loved. My wife Mary, on the other hand, is different. Her love language is quality time. And when my kids choose or I choose to spend time with her, she lights up because that makes her feel deeply loved. Well, believe it or not, Jesus has love languages too. And I can't say for sure that I don't know what they all are, but I do know what one is because he's repeatedly told us. For example, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. You see, it's clear from Jesus' own words that one way we can demonstrate our love for him is by simply doing what he says. Because unlike me, his heart is not stirred with affirming words. Because words can be hollow. Actions really do speak louder than words in God's kingdom. And the way we do that is by doing what he says. Now, what Jesus taught in this parable was nothing new because God had always set obedience as the standard by which he easily identified those who truly loved him from those who were just pretending. For example, when King Saul went to battle at the Lord's command and defeated the Amalekites, he severely miscalculated the significance that God places on obedience. And as a result, he failed to obey all the Lord's instructions when he spared the enemy king along with the livestock. So the prophet Samuel confronted him by saying this, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. You see, even though Saul obeyed most of what God commanded, he willfully neglected to obey everything because he thought his way was better. Therefore, God rejected Saul as king because he built foolishly upon the sand. And as a result, his once promising life slowly deteriorated until it ended tragically in suicide. Saul sadly discovered that partial obedience is really disobedience. You may have heard the old expression, a half-truth is really a whole lie. It's the same principle here. And one of the worst things we can believe as New Testament disciples is that because now we're covered in the blood of Jesus, that he's granted us freedom to pick and choose the commands we want to obey and disregard the rest. Or that we can continue in what we deem to be acceptable sins because they're covered anyway. But that is a lie. There are no acceptable sins. 
And the Bible says all sin separates us from God. And willful disobedience, no matter how good we are at rationalizing it in our own minds, is really rebellion against God. And it's like building our house on the sand. Partial obedience won't work any better than partial repentance. You either repented or you didn't. There is no in-between. Now, God doesn't ask for our obedience because it's fun for him to watch us jump through hoops. No, he requires it because it's best for us and best for the kingdom. For example, why do we teach our children to look both ways before crossing the street? Because it's best for them and the family to do so, whether they realize it or not. Remember, God has perfect vision. He can see the moving cars that we can't see, and especially the things working against us in the spiritual realm. And he knows what's best for us, whether it seems to make sense to him or not. Now, it's important to note that Jesus isn't calling for us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself because he, too, was obedient to the Father. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said this, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now, we'll never obey perfectly like Jesus did, but he is our model, and we're to imitate him. And he was obedient his entire stay with us 2,000 years ago. In fact, he was obedient by going all the way to Calvary, even though it was extremely difficult. But Isaiah 53 informs us that his obedience was fruitful and rewarding because it made it possible for many to be made righteous. And that's you and me. An encouraging reminder that building your house upon the rock of obedience may not be easy, but it does result in blessing. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and what? Obey it. Obedience isn't easy. It's hard. And it often involves things like suffering and difficulty and honesty and purity and unselfishness and love and humility and forgiveness and ongoing confession and repentance whenever we fail. All those fun things. But you know what? Even though it seems difficult, they're actually good for us. Because when combined with God's spirit in us, they're the very things that shape us and mold us into everything God intended us to be. And once we learn it, obedience to Jesus is actually liberating. It's not confining. You know, I find it interesting that the Greek word for Christians only occurs three times in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus. However, the Greek word for disciples occurs over 200 times. Therefore, I encourage you not to think of yourself so much as a Christian per se, but instead think of yourself as a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, because a disciple is defined as a student or a follower. You're an apprentice. 
You're a follower who's committed to doing whatever his teacher says. Author Dallas Willard put it this way. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Learning obedience is a process, but it begins with a heart that's willing to do whatever the teacher says. Look at it this way. If you were to sign up for any kind of a class, the only way you could pass that class and get good marks is to do what the professor requires. And that's why they distribute the requirements in advance by way of a syllabus, which is like a blueprint for achieving success in that class. And the best thing you can do is examine that blueprint and do exactly what it says over the course of the semester. However, if you don't follow it, or if you're only willing to partially comply, then you'll be in jeopardy of failing that class. Well, God has given us a blueprint for house building. And we'll be wise builders if we examine and follow that blueprint by doing what it says. So, how can we build our house upon the rock? In other words, how can we learn to cultivate and nurture an obedient heart? Well, let me suggest some principles that can help. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. First, it's important to know that God has thoroughly equipped us to build upon the rock. I mean, Peter confirmed that when he said, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. In other words, God hasn't called you to do something that he hasn't already equipped you to do. For example... He's given us a blueprint to work from, his powerful word that's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we know what to obey and how to obey. He's also given us his spirit in us to help us obey and to contend against the desires of our flesh. And he's given us the full armor of God to make our stand against the devil and fight spiritual battles. And he's given us the church, that's you, a family of like-minded believers that provide strength and support in numbers as we build houses and construct neighborhoods together. And he's provided us with a toll-free hotline called prayer that's available to us 24-7. He's given us the right tools to build on the right foundation. Secondly, Work to develop your intimacy with God. This is still the greatest commandment according to Jesus. It transcends both the Old and the New Testament. However, intimacy with God will not happen all by itself because it takes time and effort to develop any love relationship, and God is no exception. And this is critical because love for God, if you remember, is our primary motive that inspires our obedience. And if our attempts at obedience are not rooted in love, then it's going to feel like a chore. And if you aren't sure how to grow in your intimacy with God, then I'd encourage you to sign up for our next soul care class because that's what soul care is all about. Next. Learn to nurture a lifestyle of confession and repentance. Now, 
This too is so critically important, I cannot overemphasize it. Confession and repentance does not stop the day we enter the kingdom. Far from it. Because as followers of Jesus, we are not yet immune from the devastating effects of sin. In fact, the devil likes nothing more than when he can lure God's people into sin because he knows how much damage that it causes, especially when we keep it hidden and unchecked. And 1 John 1.9 provides a remedy for sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, we need to be intentional about identifying and confronting the sin in our lives on a daily basis because the Bible says sin is always crouching at the door looking for an opportunity to invade. Every day before my quiet time, I sit before the Lord and I say, Lord, is there any unclean thing in me? Is there anything I haven't recognized? And I, re I review the day before and I confess any sin that comes to mind, and then I repent, which is a turning away from it. And remember this, in the early chapters of Revelation, Jesus confronted seven New Testament churches, and he warned five of them to repent or else. So don't neglect this important principle. And let me add this for anybody that's here, and you may be in stuck in some kind of sin or some kind of rebellion that you can't seem to break free from. First, know that you're not alone. And secondly, know that you're probably going to need some help. And that means if you want to get free, you're going to have to tell somebody. But that's really okay because light dispels darkness. You see, pride and the devil want us to hide our sin and keep it a secret. But remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here at ACAC, we have a wonderful counseling department, and even our soul care classes help with that. So you don't have to live in bondage. Next, learn from history. The blueprint God gave us is filled with examples as both an encouragement, but also a warning for us to learn from. And we looked at Saul earlier, but perhaps the most tragic example in all of Scripture, in my opinion anyway, was King Solomon. He was granted supernatural wisdom from God early in his kingdom. But look what's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 2. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them, meaning foreign women. Why? Because they will turn your hearts to their gods. And perhaps the saddest sentence ever, yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. See, Solomon neglected God's instruction because he thought he could manage his disobedience. He thought he could disregard God's command and everything would still be okay. But it wasn't. And over time, that's the way sin works, just as God warned, his wives lured his heart away from the true and the living God to sadly worship false gods all because he disobeyed the command of the Lord. You see, God knows what's best, whether we can see it or not. But the blueprint also contains lessons of great encouragement of people who did choose obedience and were blessed by God as a result. 
People like Abraham and Noah and Moses and Joseph and Daniel, who we just finished studying, and David and Esther and Mary and Paul and the apostles, and the list really goes on. Sure, some of them experienced some pretty good setbacks along the way, but they learned to cultivate a lifestyle of obedience from a willing heart. And in the end, their houses were firmly established upon the rock. So learn from history. Next, lose your own agenda. In other words, learn to die to yourself. After all, that is the mandate for anyone who enters in by the narrow way. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, if we truly want to live for Jesus, we can't live for ourselves. And I think if we're honest, the reasons we fail to obey sometimes is because we allow our own selfish desires to get in the way and take control. But learning to crucify our flesh will naturally cultivate an obedient heart. Next, live for tomorrow, not today. Paul said in Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we got to remember that we're only passing on through to the real destination. And we don't want this destination to jeopardize that destination. So keeping our future destiny clearly in focus will help us cultivate an obedient heart. And finally, keep the love principle. It's really not complicated to follow Jesus. He's made it quite simple for us because he took all of his commands and he boiled them down into two. Love him with all of your heart. And if you do that, that'll solve a whole lot of issues right there. And secondly, love others as you love yourself. And learning to obey those two commands will naturally provide the right foundation needed to stand firm in the end. In closing, as we look ahead to this week, we have much to be thankful for. And in spite of any difficulties we may be enduring this Thanksgiving, remember that you have a Savior who loves and cares for you so much that he made a way for you to be reconciled to him. And given what he's done for all of us by purchasing our freedom with his own blood, he deserves nothing less than our deepest gratitude, our allegiance, and our obedience. So I urge you, to approach your house building with a sense of urgency because Jesus is coming soon. Either he's coming soon or you're going soon, <laughs> one or the other. But when either of those happen, you're going to want to be found living in the right house without regrets. So as I close, if you're here today and you know that you've been building foolishly upon the sand in some area of your life, and you've been saying no to God like Saul did, and you want to repent and turn away from that disobedience and make a change and begin reconstructing your house on the rock, know that it's not too late. As long as you're still here, it's not too late. So with eyes closed and heads bowed, I want to give you a minute to go before the Lord and name 
those areas in your life, if there are any, that you need to surrender to him through confession and repentance. Remember, confession is acknowledging the sin or the disobedience and expressing godly sorrow for it. Repentance is turning away from it. Maybe there's someone you've been refusing to forgive and you hear God calling you to obey by releasing that person from your debt. Or maybe you need to tame the tongue and put to death gossip and slander because there's no place for that among God's people. Or maybe you've been clinging to idols and like Solomon, they have redirected your attention away from God and you want to discard them and return to your first love. Or maybe your marriage is under tension and although you can't control anyone else, you're willing to confess and own your part and humbly seek to live in peace with one another. Or maybe you're here and you're trapped in bondage to sexual immorality of some sort. And you want to be set free and healed from your affliction before it does more damage. Whatever it might be, you know what it is and God knows what it is. We have some time, so take a minute or two and go before the Lord and deal with these things. Before I pray, with eyes closed and heads still bowed, if you committed to make a change today, just slip your hand up briefly as an acknowledgement before the Lord. Very good. Hands up. Very good. I urge you, if you committed to a change today, to share that change with a trusted friend so that they can continue to pray for you and support you and even hold you accountable if needed. And I also urge you to visit our prayer room. That's why they're there. Visit there following the service and confidentially share that change with them so they can pray for you as well. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the blueprint. You have equipped us well to build our houses upon the right foundation. And Lord, I thank you for those that raised their hands today, those who have repented and want to make a change. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage and the conviction to do so. Lord, enable them to develop their intimacy with you, making you the number one priority in their life so that they can serve you and obey you from a position of love. 
Lord, help us all to construct our houses upon the rock so that we will be found ready when that day does come, standing firm in the end with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's with great thanks we do so in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.